This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello everyone, uh, my name's Sean, I'm a producer here at ACME. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to Studio One this evening. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri people and to pay my respects to the elders of the Kulin Nation, both past and present. Uh, now tonight's event is part of our regular talking TV program, which is ACME's ongoing series of events exploring the small screen. Uh, as part of the program, we regularly uh, explore topical and historical TV content here in the studio, uh, and have previously looked at everything from Game of Thrones and Scandinavian crime drama uh, to Veronica Mars and Broad City. Uh, tonight, though, we're doing things a little bit differently, uh, and instead of looking at a particular TV series or a genre, we're going to be exploring the small screen career of the much-loved actress that we just saw in that clip, Parker Posey. Uh, now, Posey is, of course, uh, primarily known for her film work, uh, many of her best films, including Broken English, Dazed and Confused, Best in Show, and Henry Fool, are all currently being screened in Acme's cinemas as part of our uh, In Praise of Parker Posey season, which runs until the 28th of March. Uh, so there's still a number of those uh, screenings still to play. If you haven't come along to that season, uh, definitely check out the program. Um, but she has also made her mark on TV, and tonight we're going to uh, bring together a stellar group of speakers on the couch here who are going to examine just a few of those uh, small screen appearances. Uh, leading that examination will be this evening's host, writer, editor, and critic, Stephanie Van Schilt. Uh, Stephanie is a contributing editor at The Lifted Brow, is a co-host of the Rereaders podcast, and was previously uh, the TV columnist at Kill Your Darlings. Her writing has featured in various local and international and online publications, including Crikey, Metro, and Junkie, uh, and she's currently completing a PhD at Monash. Uh, joining Steph on the couch tonight are uh, uh, Luke Buckmaster, Sinead Stubbins, and Bhakti Puvanithrian, um, all of whom you'll be introduced to uh, in a little bit more detail very shortly. Uh, the wonderful Penny Modra was also due to appear tonight and was planning on discussing uh, Parker Posey's involvement in the Tales of the City miniseries, uh, but she's unfortunately had to pull out at the last minute. Um, luckily for us, though, Steph has very gallantly stepped in, uh, so she'll not only be hosting tonight's session, but she's uh, jumped headfirst into the Tales of the City uh, miniseries and its on-screen depiction of 1970s San Francisco, uh, and she'll give us her own take on Posey's iconic role in the series. Uh, so before we get started, just a, a quick heads up that we are recording tonight's session for podcasting. So if you could turn off your mobile phones, that would be great. Um, we will have some time at the end for questions. So if you have any burning issues, make sure you hold on to those uh, and be ready to discuss them with the panel. Uh, and do just use the microphone that we have around so we can get your question onto the podcast as well. Uh, finally, the doors you entered through uh, to come into the studio are now locked, so if you need to leave the space at any stage during tonight's talk for a bathroom break or anything, uh, just use this door here. There'll be an usher seated here that can uh, help you with the torch. But that's it for me. Um, please join me in welcoming Steph and tonight's panel. everyone and welcome to the studio for Acme's Talking TV. As Sean mentioned, I'm Steph Van Schilt and I'll be moderating this event. Um, this evening I'm joined on the couch by a wonderful group of critics, Sinead, Bhakti and Luke. 
Uh, they'll each be discussing Posey's performances on shows as diverse as Louie, New Girl, The Good Wife, and Tales of the City. Well, that's actually me, so. Um, <laughs> while more famous for her indie roles on film, as our critics will prove, Posey's ever present presence on the small screen is just as influential as her film work. Before, uh, I was going to explain exactly what Sean explained, but I don't need to. You'll have to forgive us. We are, and forgive the pun, dazed and confused tonight with the heat. So we're going to take it easy. Let's enjoy this air conditioning. So all right, you freshman bitches, let's get into this. <laughs> Our first presenter will be Luke Buckmaster. Luke is a film and TV critic for The Guardian Australia and Daily Review and critic for ABC iView's new show, The Critics. Tonight, Luke will be talking about Posey's work on Louis. Welcome, Luke. Hi, thank you. I realise my bio has um, like the use of the word critic in quite close proximity. It's like critic, critic, critic. Mm -hmm. Next time I'll probably change that to, I don't know, commentator or person who suffers from vitamin D deficiency. First, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to talk about um, Parker Posey and Louis. Um, hands up anyone who's actually seen Louis. That's pretty good. Keep your hands up if you've seen it and you like it. Okay, all right, that's pretty good too. Uh, I like Louis. I'm, I'm a big fan of Louis. And I've got a couple of reservations with the show that, that I'll talk a little bit about in a moment. Um, but for those who don't know what the show's about, it's, uh, it's essentially follows the, the trials and tribulations and the day-to-day -day kind of minutiae of um, Louis C.K., a, a comedian, a very gifted comedian in America who raises a couple of uh, small <coughs> children or small daughters um, and goes on various kind of awkward dates, um, gets through some various awkward situations. And one of the things that I really like about Louis is I love how it kind of works tonally. I love that the aesthetics and the way it all kind of fits together as this show that's almost like it's been styled in the glow of some kebab shop that's on, you know, late at night, you know, that kind of glowing neon thing. That's, the opening scene of each episode is, is Louis kind of coming out of the subway and having a big piece of pizza and then going into the, you know, the comedian's lounge or the comedy club. So it's got this kind of um, urine on the trash can kind of street side ambience to the show, if you like. And I guess one of the, the issues that I have with Louis, you know, it's, it's a really good show and it's kind of perilous to, to binge watch it because the more you tend to binge watch it, the more you kind of feel like the show is kind of sticking to you, like it's an icky sort of show, you know. And I think part of that comes from um, a sort of uh, a sense of self-entitlement that kind of washes through the, the main character. And I'm talking more about the main character rather than his real-life persona. Of course, they kind of get mixed up with each other. But Louis is one of those guys who um, talks about being a, you know, a white guy with a certain look and a certain appearance and disposition, saying he's an average-looking guy and certain women are completely out of his league. You know? And then you watch the show and every second or third episode, he's dating a really attractive woman <laughs> or he's dating a really interesting woman who's beautiful in their own way. He's just got a lot of... And Parker Posey, of course, is one of them. And so it's kind of like a weird juxtaposition between what he sort of says he is in the show and what the show kind of brings to him or offers him as a character. Um, so he's got this kind of strange sense of self-entitlement. And because he starts, or partly because he starts every program with the sort of bizarro Seinfeld kind of 
intro where he often talks about dick jokes and masturbation jokes and all that really extremely classy stuff. Um, the show's got quite a sleazy sort of texture to it. And it's at once kind of authentic in the sense that I know, I know several people like that, you know. I, I know people, particularly from the Melbourne comedy scene, have quite a few uh, Melbourne um, comedy scene friends of mine, <laughs> uh, all of which I hope are not, watching, are not listening to this podcast <laughs> recording, uh, who are a little bit like that. And um, I remember one time a few, a few years ago, more than a few years, probably five or six years ago, I was in a bar and I realised, I was with a very good friend of mine who's a comedian, another good friend of mine, and then all these people I just met that night. And I realised that I was the one who was making the jokes and they were all comedians. And so I was like, they're all, that, this is not, what's, what's, this is kind of weird, you know? And comedy and sadness, I think, go quite closely together in a lot of ways. And I've thought about that a lot in the, in the, in the years. So there's like this sleazy, self-entitled guy element to, 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 Lee, uh, to, to Louis. And um, Parker Posey could have changed that. I'm talking in the narrative, overarching narrative of the show. And she did change that. She changed it in the episodes that, um, that she was in. So she was in a total of um, four episodes, four or five. I'm pretty sure she was in four. But four, yeah. So, <laughs> so the last one is a very kind of quick scene with her or a couple of scenes with her that's over in a kind of heartbeat in probably more ways than one. Um, and then there's a dream sequence in the third one and the first one she's introduced and the second one they go on a date. So we'll show a scene from, from the, the date in, in just a sec. But to give you the context of how that kind of came, comes about and the context of the story, she works as a, um, a person in a bookshop and she gives advice to Louis on which books to uh, sell to him for his young daughters. And she's presented in a way that is sort of um, interesting and kind of fun, but very sensible. She's a sort of sensible character. But obviously, Parker Posey, she's also strikingly beautiful. Louis returns to the bookshop, goes into a very large, prattling monologue uh, about how he wants to go out on a date with her. And he know, he's like, I know, you know, people like you don't date people like me, but trust me, you can just walk out at any moment, yada, yada, yada. So she lets him finish and she says right at the end, like, <laughs> something like, I don't care about looks. Um, and they agree to go out on a date. And that leads to episode two, as in the Parker Posey episode two, which is in season three. And that date starts off at a bar and this sensible woman, or what we think is a sensible woman, goes to the bar and orders a couple of shots of Jaeger. And the bartender looks at her and she, and, and she goes to her, no, that's not happening. That's not happening again. I'm not letting you do that to you. I'm not letting you do that to me. Have a nice dry Riesling. And that's when we first get the indication that maybe <laughs> she's not as sensible as we sort of think. The show is about, um, at least in part, about comedy and sadness. And, you know, for a while I sort of thought, well, why are funny people that I know sad? Why do they go through depression and all these other situations? She kind of goes through her own kind of, not so much depression, because we don't understand enough to comprehend what her sort of foibles are. They give her short shrift, ultimately, in the narrative arc. But, you know, why are funny people kind of sad? 
and particularly stand-up funny people. And I think that's because the whole kind of essence of stand-up comedy is when you point out all the kind of absurdities in life. You know, it's things that ultimately kind of shouldn't, shouldn't be there. Um, things that don't work and they're funny because they don't work. And Louis is full of that sort of stuff. So I think then if you look at it in that point of view, that makes sense, starts to make sense. And um, it's only that episode where that kind of worked for me, where I really sort of saw that. Uh, it's a good, really good episode to rewatch. Um, and I also think that her performance, and you, you got at least a whiff of it there if you haven't seen it before, it's really strong. You know, it's really full-bodied. Um, and it's very, it sounds a bit like a wine analogy, but it's very strong, very full-bodied, full and it counters Louis's neurotic behavior with her own neurotic behavior that kind of e provides a sort of equilibrium, which is really cool. And the way that that series continues, um, it almost has like an immediate flow-on effect to the quality of the show. So the next episode, she's not in it, the next episode is with Robin Williams, and they go to a funeral, and he meets up with Robin Williams, they go to a funeral, and it's kind of this guy who used to own a comedy club, but was a bit of a jerk, and then they realize at a strip club that people view him a little bit differently. So she has this entire effect on the, on the whole series, at least it feels that way psychologically. And uh, I don't think it's any coincidence that the show got the best reviews, season three got the best reviews of the shows, of the show. Uh, it's on like a 93% on Metac Metacritic at the moment. The first season I checked before I came, he was on 69%, uh, which Louis would probably, probably be quite happy with that number. Uh, and then after that narrative trajectory, because Louis, tends, he, Louis thinks in his mind, uh, you know, I've got to see this woman again. But before we talk too much about that or whatnot or carry on too much about that, uh, there's also later on that series, another outstanding cameo. Uh, from the most unlikely of places, uh, and that's David Lynch. And he appears and basically proves, demonstrates that he could be an absolutely kick-ass character actor or supporting actor. And we're going to play you a scene from that, but just before we start that, um, put some context around it. Louis has uh, been told that David Letterman is retiring. They're looking at Jerry Seinfeld to be his replacement. Seinfeld's going to cost $12 million dollars. They're pretty sure they can get Louis for $1 million, probably a lot less. So they want some options. And so David Lynch plays a sort of perverse Mr. Miyagi-esque comedy coach. Louis is also partly about self-sabotage. And the problem with that, from a show perspective more broadly, is that Louis as the, the writer, sort of a writer, um, a star, you know, creator, executive producer, and a, a character inside the show who self-sabotages. He's actually self-sabotaged the entire production. And two things, I think, were the biggest examples of how the show was self-sabotaged. One is that he doesn't become a late-night TV star. It would have been absolutely fascinating if he had then become the, the sort of David Letterman character. He had morphed into that role, and the film had evolved into showing that kind of late-night TV character. But the biggest reason it self-sabotaged was because Parker Posey's character was killed off um, in short, with really short shrift, and she would have given the show a terrific equilibrium. He dates people in the show, some of them are longer than her in terms of the relationships and episodes. She's a brilliant, brilliant counter to his character, 
that's the number one way that I think uh, Louis has self-sabotaged and it's now on quote-unquote permanent hiatus. Uh, I don't know what the hell that means. I, I assume it's not coming back after five seasons. Thank you, Luke. Everyone, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was like comedy, sadness, now everyone's really miserable. <laughs> so I'll finish my topic on Parker Posey's dead in this show. Um, I just wanted to ask you about a moment that stuck out to me in, in the date episode in particular. So you talked about how Louis to you is quite real as a character um, in terms of being a comedian and, and whatnot, and I do know people who are similarly like that. Um, do you think Louis would have believed that her name was tape recorder initially? <laughs> and I think for people who don't watch the show, you might want to give some context. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, um, he's sort of in a spot of um, uncertainty. She said she introduces herself as tape recorder and she goes into a little monologue about how her, I think her parents were quite confused when, when she was born. But and this is still know. quite a, like, they've already been on the date for like at <laughs> least... It's well, a little while. Yeah, it's yeah, a little yeah. while into yeah, it, and they yeah, haven't introduced true. themselves to one another. Yeah, yeah, and she drops her name at the very end of that scene. Yeah, um, yeah uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, he's kind of unsettled throughout that whole episode because he's kind of found someone that can uh, challenge him in ways that perhaps he hasn't been challenged before. So I think that you get away with him being confused about whether her name is not actually tape recorder. And he's got this kind of apathy towards his relationships it's almost almost abusive he's never abusive to to the people that he goes out with but he's almost abusive by not doing anything uh, which is key to the show so i don't know about the answer to that question but he's definitely uh unsettled and displaced mm, yeah the other thing so i don't know about your theory with if it was a late night show whether that would actually work i don't think um perhaps that is Louis's character, like that would have been kind of a major division from who he actually is and who we've got to know, that awkward bumbling yeah. dad. Whereas if the Parker Posey thing, I think that that could have been a bit of a longer arc. Um, what would you have proposed would have happened between the characters What would your, in your dream world? Oh, wow. Well, maybe you're right about the, the David Letterman thing, but I still think it would have been a fascinating way to fascinating way for the show to evolve. Well, that'll be his comeback. He's the comeback, yeah. perhaps. And, and this, I mean, in, in real life, Louis did sort of do a spiel at the Oscars this year, you know, so that's a kind of pedigree performance, you know, and he's been talked about as a potential host. How the, the relationship and the romance would have evolved, um, I think she would have broken it off at some stage. Um, but before they went to that point, or got to that point, I think it would have been like watching um, before midnight or before sunset or before sunrise, but put through an absolute shitstorm of a blender. Uh, <laughs> and it would have had some fascinating walks through the park. Hmm, with some urine, New York Street urine in there. <laughs> I reckon. Um, yeah, I find that interesting. I read something in an interview with her where um, they were saying that she was kind of like a therapist in this situation and in terms of the arc where she brought him out and started making him think about things and then that's why she disappeared. Um, but anyway, I digress. Next up is Bhakti Parath... Oh, I knew I was going to fuck it up. It's okay. Pumanithrian. Bhakti is the digital entertainment editor, editor for The Age. I can't even say editor, so we're doing all right. And Sydney Morning Herald. She has previously worked at the ABC and the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Tonight, Bhakti will be talking about Posey's brief role on the excellent show, The Good Wife. Welcome, Bhakti. 
Thanks for having me. Um, you may or may not have heard I'm on strike at the moment, as is the rest of the Age newsroom and the Sydney Morning Herald newsroom and the Newcastle Herald newsroom and the Canberra Times newsroom and the Brisbane Times newsroom. So I'm allowed to be here because I'm not being a scab um, <laughs> because Fairfax isn't paying me to be here. But I did want to say that if you want quality journalism, you should pay for it and you should support your union and the media union as well. Um, thank you. Um, so if you don't know much about The Good Wife, it, it's, kind of, it's a funny show in that it's, um, it's a network show, so they have to produce shitloads of content um, and it's all super high quality and it rates really, really well, but it's also quite a critical success. It's very rare and I think a lot of people think it's a soap opera and, of course, it has those elements of romantic intrigue, but to me it's so much more than that. So the good wife herself is Alicia Florick, played by Juliana Margulies, and she's the wife of the shamed state's attorney Peter Florick, Chris Noth, Mr Big. Um, she... <laughs> She kind of, this, the whole thing starts with her standing by her man publicly after he's accused of cheating um, with sex workers. It's a very kind of Bill and Hillary kind of thing. Um, but the marriage dissolves privately, but not publicly. And Alicia returns to the workforce as a lawyer out of financial necessity, but also as an act of empowerment. So the show kind of swings between a legal procedural very stylish legal procedural and uh, kind of House of Cards style political drama um, with kind of Peter's rise and rise in the political world and also the kinds of cases they take on because I think it's the best show on television about technology. Um, the cases always seem to de deal with privacy, technology, human error. It's incredibly advanced and it's also always keeping up with kind of hot button issues like abortion, college rape, racial tensions in the US, diversity in the workplace, um, I don't want to spoil anything, but Hillary Clinton is like, she features super heavily in this current season, which is also the last season. Weep. Um, <laughs> the um, other important character to note for our purposes is Peter Florick, who's um, the state's attorney who then goes on to kind of, you know, have a burgeoning political career. He's spinner and campaign manager, Eli Gold, who's played by the incredible Scottish actor, Alan Cumming. Um, <laughs> Eli has the, the loyalty and the attachment of a long-time butler, and I think his kind of deep <laughs> Britishness comes through in that way, but also a razor-sharp political nouse and a strong nose for bullshit. He's one of my favourite characters on the show. He's definitely my favourite male character on the show. Um, and I think that's where Parker Posey comes in. I think the whole point of Parker Posey, um, because she plays his ex-wife, is to is to tell us like what kind of woman could have possibly landed Eli Gold for so long and and also being the mother to um, the extremely sassy character Marissa played by Sarah Steele um, who features heavily as well in the show she's she's an incredible character and I know that sounds bracing for those of us who would like to see Parker Posey get bigger roles on TV but as guess what's go I think it's a it's a really important one you know it's it's a shame that has to be kind of balanced against a man as it is in, in Louis, but that seems to be her lot. Um, it's also worth noting that Cumming probably had a lot to do with Posey getting the job. So he's on record saying that um, he had a meeting with Robert and Michelle King, who are the husband and wife duo that write the show. 
they're, they're fascinating. You should look them up. They're like Christians, but they always talk about all these radical ideas in their shows. And yeah, they're, they're amazing. Anyway, so he met with them and said, it's really implausible that my character never has sex. Please let me have sex on the show. Um, <laughs> and so... Um, and they, and they deliver. So in the three-episode arc that Posey is in, he also he has like a love triangle with uh, another spinner played by Amy Sedaris, who's, you know, like <laughs> extraordinary casting. Um, and so, yeah, so Amy Sedaris is a spinner, a rival spinner of um, Eli Gold and then Parker Posey's the ex-wife, Vanessa. And it's also worth noting that Alan Cumming and Parker Posey have been in movies together, so they were in the anniversary party and Josie and the Pussycats. But this was their first um, TV show together. Um, so Eli, what happens is Eli needs something from the State Department and Vanessa has connections there, so he seeks her out and he finds her running along um, a path in Chicago um, and he, she, she says, I can help you, but you have to help me. I'm going to run for state senate. And then he issues a background check on her. And that's what we just saw. And the background check um, kind of reveals that she had sex with um, a second cousin of Osama bin Laden, (laughs) which is classic The Good Wife, like so edgy. Um, (laughs) So um, yeah, and then what happens is that he, we're, we're, the scenes we're about to see, he kind of, he's, he's obviously upset by that. Um, he goes to see her and then ends up kind of succumbing to the, poke, the Parker Posey kind of, um, I don't know, what, what she has, her allure, and uh, agrees to do, sorry, he, he says no. Um, he briefly took her on as a candidate. They briefly uh, rekindled their affair and then it all disappeared in a blaze of glory um, because he was he was told by uh, kind of a, a, a Democrat faceless man, if you like, that he had to drop her because they the Democrats wanted to run someone else in the state Senate as their candidate. So he puts his career before his ex-wife, which is Eli's story. He puts his career before um, everything. And and you get the sense that he put he put his career before Parker Posey when they were married. And that's, that's the tragedy of his character. Um, that's why I, I feel like he's a butler, you know, like they're not really allowed to have sex lives and that's why he, <laughs> um, that's the, that's the um, yeah, that's the world he lives in. But, you know, she's screwed over it by him and by the system, but she's also still never really a victim. Like, you know that when she walks out of that office, she's just gonna go and do um, something fun with Amy Sedaris anyway. Um, <laughs> And like so many of Posey's characters, she's definitely up against something, but she retains her pluck. And, you know, um, a friend of mine at work, Josephine Tovey, she's, uh, she's based in New York. She recently spoke to Parker Posey and for, for a story. And Joe was saying how excited that Parker, she, so Parker was saying how excited she is by the boom in auto TV. And she mentioned Louis C.K. and she mentioned Lena Dunham and, and Mindy Kaling. And she kind of, I think she's really invigorated because she sees that 90s indie movie scene that gave her so much um, being replicated in some ways in TV now. But even then, the TV is kind of letting her down. Um, she, so this is the quote. I do a spot on 
I show and everyone talks to me about it and they're like, aren't you going to be on it again? And I'm like, they said it might turn into a big character and then it never does. I just can't. I'm too old. Why martyr myself? I would rather go back to do something else, start another business because life is short and if it's not giving back. It's a real shame. Um, BuzzFeed listed all the guests, like all the cameos on The Good Wife and they like put her at number 42. I, I don't understand why she hasn't been able to cut through. Um, and it's a, it's a real shame that TV roles aren't giving back to her even in this kind of golden age because to me she's the quintessential TV comedian and, you know, like drama heavyweight and probably the only person who could have been worthy of Eli Gold. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. Thanks. So before we all have a chat... Um, and Sinead. Well, yes, no, and propose our theories. <laughs> it's okay to skip. No, 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 we can all chat right now. You okay. guys don't gag, like, it's fine. <laughs> um, where does Parky po Parker Posey rank on your guest wife cameo? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I really would rate her, like, it's... I should have Googled all the amazing cameos they've had. Can you think of any off the top of your head? Oh, Amy Sedaris is the one that also stands out for me. Yeah, um, they, they really get whoever they want. Um, yeah, she's in the top five easily. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it, it's only three episodes and yet she kind of, you, you're like, who, who else could play? Um, she, you don't even know what her job is? You know, yeah. you're like, what's your job? You're running for state senate, but what is your actual job? Jogging. <laughs> That's all we see her do. And I, I completely... And looking sassy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I completely agree with you with saying that she's the perfect mother character for the daughter, which, who has gone on to play such a big role. Oh, I should have got just, a clip of Sarah Steele. Yeah, yeah. just so perfect. Mm. Um, so we were, we were going to have a discussion between us about why Parker Posey hasn't had any bigger roles, but I think we might get Sinead's theory on um, Parker Posey's guest I don't know TV if my theory role. is related, but I do want to talk about that as Yes, well. but, and then we'll come back and have a chat because Bhakti's rules. Um, <laughs> so, yes, Sinead Stubbins is going to talk about uh, Posey's many TV cameos. Sinead is a freelance writer who has written about pop culture for Junkie, The Guardian, Frankie, Vulture and Pitchfork. Everyone, welcome Sinead. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, so as we know, Parker Posey's done a lot of guest roles on comedies throughout the years. She's been in Will and Grace as Jack's maniacal boss. She was in Futurama as a space mermaid, if anyone's a <laughs> Futurama fan. Uh, she was Otto, the bus driver's girlfriend in The Simpsons. And recently she's been in Louie, obviously, Portlandia, uh, Inside Amy Schumer, New Girl, uh, a bunch of others. So. Let's think about this. To the casual observer, these are just a collection of Parker Posey's cameos on random comedies. Um, she's very popular, queen of indie cinema, and is pretty much like a walking, talking pop culture reference, like herself, like it embodies <laughs> a pop culture reference. Um, if anyone's seen Scream 3, then they, <laughs> they know that. Yeah, some Scream 3 fans in the audience. Uh, obviously, she's super funny. Uh, but what if these just aren't a string of unrelated comedy show cameos. Like, what if all of these characters are more than cosmically linked? What if all these characters that Parker Posey plays in these comedies are actually the same character? 
stay with me. Uh, <laughs> so this is a foolproof, 100% true theory that I definitely did not make up today, so I had something to talk about. Um, it's 100% true. Uh, <laughs> so the basis of this theory um, starts with a movie, which I think is a little against the rules, but I'm going to go with it anyway. That's where the genesis for this performance opus begins. Uh, can we get the first image? Yeah, cool. <laughs> current mood. Um, <laughs> not really. <laughs> um, so in 97, uh, Parker Posey was in this weird indie movie called The House of Yes. Has anyone seen it? Yeah. Yeah, cool. You know. Um, so it had Freddie Prince Jr. in it and Tori Spelling. She was nominated for a Razzie, so obviously it was fantastic. Um, it's about this guy named Marty who brings his fiance home, who is Tori Spelling, to meet his wealthy and very eccentric family. Uh, Parker Posey plays his twin sister, who's recently been released from a psychiatric hospital. Um, <laughs> I like that you're laughing already. <laughs> um, she is obsessed with Jackie Onassis, dresses like her, and only answers to Jackie O. Uh, obviously, it is a comedy, not a brutal look at mental illness. Um, Jackie and Marty, her brother, used to reenact the JFK assassination. Um, and they were also a couple, brother and sister couple. Um, Tori Spelling uh, walks in on them coupling at some point and Freddie Prince Jr. comforts her and just explains that Parker Posey has a borderline personality disorder and is off her meds. So Marty gets no explanation. <laughs> it's just like, well, Parker Posey's your sister. So yeah, it's fucked up. Um, so the film is important because I would argue that every character Parker Posey plays in the following TV comedies is actually just another delusion of Jackie O. And that in actual fact, they are all the same person on a journey over several decades. Um, I actually asked some scientists to um, to map out this phenomenon, it took a few days. So if we could just put up the second image. Yeah, so it's really, <laughs> it's a bit complicated. If you don't get it, I can explain it, but yeah, don't feel bad if you don't get it. Um, so I'm not gonna talk about them all today, but on, uh, so the Afro picture, um, that's Parker Posey in Portlandia, where she plays a fashion consultant that rebrands um, a dollar store's image. And um, down the bottom with Amy Schumer, that's in, inside Amy Schumer, and her and Amy um, are getting some lunch and they tell the waiter that they don't want any nuts in their meals and then they get a salad that's covered in peanuts and both their heads explode. So she's got range. Anyway, back to my thesis. Exhibit A, Parks and Recreation. So in season three of Parks and Rec, um, Parker Posey plays Lindsay Carlisle Shea, who is <laughs> fantastic name, and is Leslie Nope, Amy Poller's uh, former best friend and current enemy. Um, she's the Parks director of Eagleton, which is kind of like the Shelbyville of this <laughs> universe, <laughs> like very wealthy. Um, Leslie hates Lindsay because she feels like she's a snob and she turned her back on Pawnee and that, um, Eagleton only has Pawnee beat in life expectancy, beauty pageants, and average income. <laughs> She's also mad that Lindsay has built a fence in the park that borders Pawnee and Eagleton and wants her to tear it down. Um, I think we can assume that after fleeing her home in the house of yes, Jackie O settled in Pawnee, changed her identity, and developed a love of parks and horse riding, much like the real Jackie O herself, 
Such was her <laughs> commitment to the obsession with the Kennedys. So, uh, yeah, that's a flawless theory. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> um, I love one of the greatest things about Parker Posey, and this has been said before, is that even when she's playing like a really together character, there's like a hint of insanity behind her smile. Like, there's something really wrong going on behind her eyes. I feel like it's very Lynchian. She should have been in the Twin Peaks reboot. I feel like we would have heard that casting announcement by now. Anyway, <laughs> exhibit B, New Girl. In New Girl, Posey plays a shot girl called Casey, which I didn't know what a shot girl was until watching this episode, which obviously proves that I don't go into any like youth crazy mad clubs. Shot girls, does anyone know? What I think it's American. Yeah, okay, so I'm cool. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, so in this episode, which was the season two premiere, um, Schmidt wants to rebrand his personal brand. So he has a rebranding party and Jess, who's just <laughs> lost her job, um, is hired as a shot girl. And yeah, so is Parker Posey. So the saga continues and this is how it fits into the puzzle. So Jackie O, after being found out as a fraud in Pawnee, where she's thrown in jail, seeks sanctuary, the bright lights of LA, where she chooses to forget her twin brother and their love, forbidden love. <laughs> she enrolls in MIT because Jackie Kennedy herself went to university in Massachusetts. And then, are you laughing because it's true? Correct. <laughs> and is in a horrible accident, presumably while she's attempting to kill someone else in the reenactment of JFK's death. So Jackie has now let go of her high-class life and embraced a career as a shot girl, but still holds on to the dismissiveness of thinking that every man is a stupid jerk. Which, you know, no offence, Luke. <laughs> um, yeah, so the thing about Parker Posey I love as well is that um, it seems like all these shows want her to give them a cameo, which I know we'll talk about later, but it's almost because she brings such a cool cachet and that's why they're like, oh, we just need her in there so we can tell the cool kids that we get it. Mm. It's like, just give her a role that's longer. Hence the shotgun. Girl, Hence they're, the cool, shotgun right? they're cool, <laughs> apparently. Um, anyway, the last piece of evidence. Exhibit C, drunk history. So, the <laughs> so obviously some people know about drunk history. For those of you who have never seen drunk history, it's a series on Comedy Central that was based on a funny or die sketch. Um, the idea is that the host, comedian Derek Waters, um, gets people to drink copiously and then um, recount a moment in history that they know very well. Um, and I didn't know this, but apparently they actually get them really drunk and Derek is just a few drinks behind them so he can keep an eye on the situation but also enjoy it. Um, so the scene is reenacted by celebrities to the drunk teller's narration. Uh, Parker Posey was in the Inventors episode last year um, as the inventor of the bra, Mary Phelps Jacob. So maybe at this point you're thinking, none of this makes sense. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> because this is where the theory that Parker Posey is just playing Jackie O from the House of Yes again and again gets better. True. How can a character from a movie that was set in, 90, well, set in the 80s, made in 97, also be the same character as someone who invented the bra in the early 1900s? But I would argue that this is so ridiculous and implausible that it actually proves my theory and is classic Posey. So the similarities between these characters are actually extensive. They're both privileged, have del delusions of grandeur, live very scandalous lives, get bored very easily. They both changed their name. Obviously this means that the character from Jackie from the House of Yes is actually immortal, having made a pact with the devil early in her life and possibly is also a witch. <laughs> So given Parker Posey does not age herself, this is not an outrageous claim. 
If you need further evidence of this character and Parker Posey's immortality, you needn't look further than her Twitter, which is excellent. Please all follow her now. Um, just the next clip. <laughs> yeah, so she proves my thesis here. Uh, she's hashtag travel dispirited, starving tired because she's over a thousand years old. Thank you, Parker, for coming to my aid. Immortal. So I think to conclude, it's safe to say Parker Posey has actually manifested one of the most complex and enduring comedy performances of any actor in the history of acting, stringing together various comedy guest star roles to tell the dramatic story of the life and times of Jackie O. These may seem like unrelated events, but there's, it's really the result of expert planning and boyhood levels of creative patience. I rest my case. I feel like you dropped mic on that. Like, I'm totally I behind this whole yeah, thing. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> it was the witch tweet that got me. Well, you yeah. know, it proves it. It's the truth. Yeah. Everyone tells the truth on Twitter. That's what it's there for. I'm going to quickly do my spiel and then we can have a chat because that's the fun part. Um, so, yes, our final presenter for this evening will be me. Um, Sean read my bio. You've had enough of me already. So, I'll just quickly go through, um, I want to take a brief look at Parker Posey's role as kind of like a cult sex icon. So to be clear, I'm not going to objectify Posey, that's not my intention. I just want to consider while most of the roles touch on, um, particularly like this evening, have predicated by some kind of dynamic sexuality, one that's embodied most prominently in her works in Tales of the City. But first, let's again consider her role on Louis. I know Luke covered it thoroughly, but I just have a few words to say. Um, she's presented as a classic, unattainable bookshop girl, one of the few modes of employment that women who are an attractive, perhaps um, in a meet-cute rom-com situation, are allowed to, to take, that and artist and teacher and writer, which really just means they wear glasses and chew a pen. Um, but in this case, I kind of feel like in the first episode particularly, and definitely in the flashes of his mind, that Posey's positioned as a manic pixie dream girl of sorts. Obviously, it gets quite dark in the other episode, but I feel like it's definitely playing on this element. Um, and in the opening um, stand-up Seinfeld thing that Louis does at, at the beginning, he was, he's talking about his almost anti-fantasies about Scarlett Johansson, where he says, I don't even jerk off to her, that's how much I like her. So it's kind of like giving us some foreshadowing for the way he romanticizes um, Liz, um, Parker Posey's character later on. They also, uh, he also kind of has counter, he also has fantasies about her, but he slams her up against a wall um, and over the closing credits, those flashes that we get of her, which we didn't get to show, it's kind of like, um, it reminded me of like Goddard with his muse Anna Karenina in the new wave or the way Woody Allen like fixates his lens on whoever he's obsessed with at the time and being all creepy about. But in those sequences, um, Parker Posey is amazing. The camera loves her. While she's not a Johansson, Johansson type at, at all um, and she mouths like, I love you, you'd propose that instead of, um, you know, jerking off over Scarlett, um, Parker Posey's character or um, even fucking her, he would want to make love because he approaches her for parental advice and all of that kind of schmushy stuff. But as I said, the, the camera still loves her. Um, her wide grin is seductive 
Uh, her firm cheekbones, her brows, her laugh lines pop in every scene, even when she says that she's 26, and I love it. Um, and generally, in her generally infectious amusement results in a wholly unconventional and rather indescribable sexual pull, which is kind of ironic given I'm trying to describe it. But um, in this way, when the male gaze is foisted upon Posey, it's kind of subverted by her screen presence. Um, she's unattainably erotic, not singly for her looks or her figure or her wiles. She's alluring for the fact that she is Parker Posey. Like you were saying, she's incredibly like credible and cool. She's this indie screen queen for the ages, the comedic marvel that the New Yorker called the greatest character actress of the last few decades. Posey carries, carries the power to play the creator of the bra with amazing verve in drunk history, only a few years later to muse how she doesn't even have boobles on Louie. Um, her role on The New Girl um, is as a shock girl, and as Sinead covered, it's, it's quite amusing and funny, and as we saw, she's not afraid of what she's doing. And what I really loved about that cameo is, yeah, she's kind of sad and apparently has lost half her brain, but for the first part, <laughs> we see her just having total fun and calling all of these guys who are object objectifying her jerks. Um, She's essentially a counterpoint to the titular new girl. Posey has what Nick explains Jess hasn't, that specific hotness that shames men into spending $9 on a shot. And then there's The Good Wife, like Bhakti covered, and it's, it still blows my mind that for a show that hinges its very existence on the fallout of political sex scandals, Posey's four-episode cameo as Eli's wife manages to upstage them all, upstage them all because she's fucked a Bin Laden. Like <laughs> that's pretty good, and I really love the flippant and lilting way. She's like, I didn't know he was a Bin Laden, and then it's done. Like what Bin Laden? Um, but that's where uh, so Posey's small scream sexuality truly shines is in the Tales of the City, a '90s and early '90s miniseries based on Armistead Morpin's best-selling books, renowned for their frank and touching portrayal portrayals of queer relationships, sexual politics, drug use, and many other things. Uh, the first miniseries adaptation begins in the summer of 1976. The central character is Mary Ann, played by Laura Linney. Wide-eyed and perky, Mary Ann has decided to stay permanently in San Francisco following her vacation there. After emancipating herself over the phone to her mother, Mary Ann heads uphill, of course, to her old high school friend's place, Connie Bradshaw, played by Parker Posey. 93 must have been a good year for Parker's 70 re 70s revival with Dazed and Confused also released that same year. Um, also, that's playing tomorrow night, so just a little, definitely get along to that. Um, anyway, she, uh, Connie is the same age as Marianne, but she seems years beyond her. She's got this party girl attitude and she might be dressed in pigtails and overalls, but she's super liberated and there's just sex everywhere. So years before there was Carrie Bradshaw, there was Connie Bradshaw, a petite, sexually liberated and outspokenly active woman in the big city, but this time San Francisco, not New York. So Connie's footloose and fancy free, dancing her way across town and beds, hopping to the beat of her own disco tune, that it so happens is in step with the sexual revolution of the 70s. At one point, she literally opens Marianne's eyes to the revolution that is happening before them, discussing orgies, porn and getting laid from the outset. Connie's relaxed, empowered attitude towards sexuality is flagrantly on display across her apartment without fear, without male influence. It's so excellent and I think epitomizes Parker Posey's allure. Um, we've got a clip. Can I play that? And then we'll wrap up. Thanks.
We don't have a clip. We have one finger up. Wasn't that it? Was that yeah, that was it. That's the whole show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's set in set in San Francisco, and it has the show opens with credits that are um, it's Hitchcock's Vertigo theme over the top of them, and so it's got this very it's very aware of gender politics and sexual politics. There's there's no denying that. How are we going, mate? Still this. Um, I should also say, I don't know if I mentioned that Roberta's in the audience. Did I say that earlier? Yeah? So if anyone has questions regarding the film season, get them ready, because after I finish chatting and we watch this clip, um, we'll all be having a chat and then throwing to you. <laughs> and thank you so much for the uh, meeting with us and for the connection to the shoot. Now, we're back to film tonight. Uh, so, our Asian guys and Tyler, if you want to say. Yeah, I can't even read the last paragraph because it follows into it, but it doesn't really matter. I still want to talk about how. Um, she hasn't got her own role, her big gig. How come she is all these cameos? She is only Laura Linney's friend in Tales of the City. She is only Leslie Nope's ex-best friend. Um, why do we think that is? What, what is it about Parker Posey? I think part of it has to do with the fact that, so we all have this idea of Parker Posey in our minds, like this actress has been in all these amazing things and is so funny and is so iconic. And I think it's almost scary for some of these shows to cast her in a regular role. Like mm. with big actors, like I'm thinking of Friends here, with big actors, they would be cameos because they didn't have time to be like a huge role on Friends. Like they didn't have time to be on TV on a sitcom. And I think that happens with Parker Posey, like, which is a shame because she is a working actress. Mm. Like, like she... She wants the work. She wants the work, obviously. Like mm. that quote was very pertinent. Like. It is a shame because I feel like she'd be so good in ensemble cast. And before we started this, we were talking about Gilmore Girls. She would have been fantastic on Gilmore Girls. Absolutely. Something like that or Community. It's a real shame. She does have the dramatic chops and that slapstick comedy improv thing. That, Her timing yeah. is like incredible. Absolutely. Luke, what do you think? Uh, I think both the happy and sad thing about that is that she's probably done, definitely done more than a lot of other female actors have. Uh, who are also terrifically talented as well, and who've been uh, largely blocked out of the industry, um, which is really male-dominated. Uh, that's really a fact. Uh, I used to, to date a, an actress uh, a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago. Was it ago. Parker Posey? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I wish. Jackie Yo. <laughs> it was a difficult part of that was, you know, you need to be able to encourage someone to follow their dreams uh, just as you need to be there for someone to support somebody when things don't go to plan. Uh, and when you're talking about casting agents and acting, you're talking about a system that oscillates between treating people like trained animals or carcasses or slabs of meat. And one of the, the bits of advice that she got, um, or off-the-cuff commentary, if you like, from her agent, uh, was to say the best and most effective way you can be an actor and get roles on major TV programs is to wait until you're 70 
because my book over here with the, my, uh, my people in it, we've got about three women who's over 70. So she was not even close to 70 at that time. <laughs> so that's not the, the greatest um, advice, I guess. But it does kind of tap into larger issues around casting uh, strong female characters. But what I, I love about Parker Posey is she hasn't had her last fuckable day like that no. sketch. That, yeah. yeah. And I think that that's her power. And I think that now is the time that a vehicle can really get behind her. Like, maybe I'll go back to True Detective if you get Parker Posey. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Netflix, I'm sure, could come up with something. Yeah. And they should have, they would do that justice. I mean, he's a character actor also. So to cast her as the, I'm going to talk about a lead of the show, I guess. That's not really what character actors do. But um, she's probably been kind of to an extent forced into being a character actor. I don't know. But uh, yeah, true detective <laughs> with Parker Posey. Well, let's there. talk about the show that she was slated to be the lead for that mm. didn't do very well. What was it called? I'd like to hear people's yeah. opinions. Oh, no. Yeah, so why? <laughs> Why do you think it only got three episodes? Is that saying something about her or saying something about the show? Straight up, it was, so it was by some of the creators of Gilmore Girls, and it was straight up it was the yeah. year after Gilmore Girls finished. Yeah. It was their the next show after that, and right. I think like a oh, was it before part, Bunheads? Yeah, it was before oh, Bunheads. Wow. I think a large part of why it didn't work in terms of Parker Posey's involvement is everything that you guys have spoken about tonight. Every character she plays is so infused with Parker Posey-ness. And this is the first time I've ever seen her on, in a film or on TV where that is just completely stripped away. It's just, she plays yeah. the kind of straight, straight-laced character, not in a comedic, um, best-in-show kind of straight-laced way. <laughs> just yeah. in a, it's, she's just such a bland character. And Lauren Ambrose from Six Feet Under plays the kind of quirky, interesting, mm. weird mm. one. And it just, it's not pocket yeah. It's really, yeah. I think they've just gone, you need to tone your pocket pleasiness down to, to be a lead. And yeah, it, did, and it's it didn't like work. everybody wants to watch Parker Posey. Yeah. So let's have her here, but don't let her be Parker Posey. Yeah. But perhaps, perhaps now's the time, you know, yeah. like technology has changed how we view and watch TV and what's being produced um, and how we, yeah, how we watch it. Yeah, the way we shows want. were marketed in, we, when Gilmore Girls finished it. Yeah. 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 We probably didn't really. have access to it. Like and it I actually got more episodes released when it was released on 
Amazon Prime. <laughs> really? So well as well. Yeah, so you can act, you could get seven on there. You can't get them anymore. I, I guess I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, um, she said in the interview, I'd say it was quite an unhappy experience for her. Mm. Okay. Her was adjusting that very specific style, which is the same as Billboard Girls, that sort of fast forward mm. rhythm. And, and she doesn't talk like that. That's not her rhythm. So, and she said yeah. it didn't leave her with a lot of choices. Yeah, well, I guess it's quite scripted, the Gilmore Girl stuff, and she does a lot of improv. I know with The Good Wife, she said she improved a lot with yeah. Ellen Cumming. And that, I think, is kind of like the sexual power of Parker Posey on the screen. She exudes thoughtful carelessness, expressing a life of central joy in her own mortality through laughter and the occasional educated fuck. So that was the end of my thing. Um, I might throw it open to you guys if there are any questions. Just pop your hand up, and Sean's got the microphone there. Or comments? Hi, I'm, I'm so glad you show that clip from Louis because I've watched that a lot of times and thought about it a lot. Um, I'm really curious about the male and the female perspective on that one because when I saw that the first time, it was it was that she's her character is so fun, she's so great for him, and you know the manic pixie dream girl thing you're talking about. It just because I know the Louis character is so great and lovable, but like shoots himself in the foot, he's not confident, oh, she'd be so great, oh, they're having so much fun, I'm laughing so much, the tape recorder thing, and then the, um, the whole like making him put on a dress. Really, really fun. And then there's that moment, I mean, uh, she's sitting on the ledge, and oh, I'm having so much fun, and then she gives that look, and I'm like, oh, there's something, she's, there's something wrong, she's, she's sad, or maybe she's mentally a little unbalanced, the sort of the thing with the bar and the, Maybe she's not totally in control. Then I decided to go online and sort of like look a little more into this because uh, I usually don't do that with television. But there was a lot written about that and oh, this was just sort of a send up of the manic pixie dream girl and like I felt kind of, oh, I was sort of fooled here. <laughs> she was bored. She actually, she's like, I'm not really having fun with this guy. He's kind of lame. He's not very much fun. So I, every time I watch it now, I can see either of those explanations as to what's going on and uh, sort of what we heard both I'm just curious what you all think is happening in that moment so that I can uh, sort of hear more opinions because I, well, I think could talk about it forever sorry I mean I think the female condition is like you're so sometimes you're so bored that you feel insane like those things are <laughs> they they are related right you're like oh god am I the end like you feel so Sometimes in those situations you feel very alone because of the female condition and I think she epitomizes that in a in a really potent way. I also think that the follow-up episode where Chloe Savini's in it mm. um, as her replacement at the bookshop when Liz disappears, um, they she decides to go looking with Louis for Liz um, and she's just like peak crazy girl. Um, and I feel like that what it, like it's not I don't know maybe it's because I'm kind of super feminist and coming from my position, but I feel like Louis was allowed to be kind of a little bit creepy, but essentially endearing to this manic pixie green dream girl when he well, was. That's what I mean. And whereas if in the next episode, yeah, Chloe Savini's character is like a nutbag because she's like, let's do this for romance. That's what this is about stick your finger up me in a cafe and let's keep going. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm. I just think it's very Louis C. Hey, Sheen. So I'm kind of on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl side of things. 
And she was essentially used as a character, like as a character development device for Louis. As you said, the whole yeah. season yeah. changed on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, with that Liz on the ledge and she's saying, "I'm not going to jump off," uh, I thought she's thought about that before. She's contemplated it. That's what I, the message I got out of that. When she says, "I'm not going to jump," she's already contemplated jumping before, which is kind of like she's much more mature than Louis because you can see Louis sort of comes out that door or goes into the door at the very, very end and the camera pans back sort of after his gaze, which means he's still kind of com contemplating it himself. Do you think that, um, you know, she's com com you know, she's thought about it before, but she's so comfortable with herself. She knows. She's, I don't know. Even, she's not even thinking about it. She can just, like, hang on the edge and be like... There's something in her gaze that says to me that there's a sadness there. Like, there's something that says to me she's... Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. what I thought it was too. On the other hand, like when she says, I, I'm having so much joy, she doesn't look like she's having that much joy, no, does she? But see, this is the complexity. Like, I feel like the manic pixie dream girl thing was initially a way of saying, look at these characters. These women aren't being given a lot to do. They're there for male action. But then it ended up limiting a lot of characters who perhaps had a, the same characteristics in a, as a manic dream pixie girl um, but like that's a way to dismiss them like oh she's just playing a manic dream pixie girl she's just playing it when it's like well no in this scenario there is a lot more depth to that and the fact that we're debating right now if she's full of joy or if she was contemplating suicide is a testament to that mm. you know? yeah I think like it's very self-aware the show mm. like it was a deliberate construction I think on its part but it was definitely to propel his narrative because the show is about him it's not about Liz the girl yeah. who works at the bookstore mm. who then gets killed off you know I, I'm not entirely I think you can read the last episode two ways I've watched it a few times now because the first time I just took it literally and um, uh, sorry for the plot spoiler but yeah it seems that she just has this really fast forwarded death that comes out of nowhere there's a moment of panic where she realises what's happening to her and she doesn't want to die, but it's out of her hands. So how does she die? Um, uh, there's an illness that she had as a child. It's just like a cancer returned. And mm. blood but it all happens just very quickly. And then the end of that scene, Louis C.K. winds up in China. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sur about surreal. surreal. I yeah. feel like Louis... That is something I thought about as well, and I was going to ask Luke that. Yeah. To come back to the show yeah. If at any time she agreed to, because he wrote, obviously he wrote both that character with her in mind. Mm. He knew that she, she trusted him and said, okay, create a character for me and I'll, I'll come on the show. Um, 
and I do remember reading somewhere that she was very upset shooting the, the ostensible death scenes. Um, but because it plays in a way that maybe it's literal and maybe it, it's all just a horrible fantasy uh, on the part of Louis C.K., it does, it, it left the way open for Liz to come back into the show. That never happened, and it may be because she felt burnt and just went, that was too hard, I went to a really painful place, I don't want to go there again. Uh, or maybe Louis C.K. never kind of came up with an angle that was interesting enough for her. Um, but I, I feel like um, that's, that's a fair reading. And, you know, that's a great reading. That's a, and, this, and there are other examples in the show of those sort of distortions in, in reality and um, fantasy. You know, when you're watching TV, the ads sometimes kind of subtly interact with his life. So it's, there's precedence for that. Um, yeah, it could just be as simple as he doesn't want to share the spotlight. Are you talking to me? to talk about the fact that it's so interesting that she's in all of these comedies yeah, and, and the fact that they actually want her to be in these comedies because she comes with that cachet. Mm -hmm. Like, we get Spring it, guys. Breakdown? Sorry? Have you seen Spring Breakdown? I have. So good. <laughs> but yeah, but I think, like what I was saying before, I think everyone gets a bit of cachet, a bit of pop culture yeah, cachet from having her involved. Oh, well, I was, yeah. yeah. I was just being I, silly. I, 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 yeah, I, yeah. Just, I just wanted to talk about that. Yeah. I, we should probably just have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you say she's always party girl to you, though, because maybe yeah. that's also why she hasn't translated to TV in a long-term screen, because mm. I think she, her feminism is a very 90s feminism. Her aura is a very 90s feminist aura, and maybe she, she just doesn't. Even though she's a great character actor, maybe the rest of her doesn't fit into like how how we explore feminism in TV now. Or maybe yeah. Louis yeah. on hiatus because they're just waiting for Parker Posey's character to come. <laughs> we don't know. Maybe it's going to be Parker. <laughs> are there any other questions before we head off? Yeah, this one. Uh, hello. Oh. I, I don't know if this will sum up anything particularly, especially if it's a, a last question, but. 
yeah, I know the obviously the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing is is a, dis, a descriptor of underwritten roles more than it's a, necessarily a box to to put characters in. Although now it's just a thing you you call characters that are seemingly fit that mold. But is the problem also that yeah the transitioning from even if she was a, a pro, the idea of a proto Manic Pixie Dream Girl when she had the big indie nineties sort of film success that it's been incredibly difficult for her to transfer sort of transfer that into being a Manic Pixie Dream woman as she. Like there's, you know, there's a general problem with with female actor, uh, like actresses yeah. a- aging out of perceived the kind of roles that they could do. But I don't. Know, is there not a space necessarily for even even that limited role of a manic pixie dream woman because it doesn't quite fit into this uh, any I'm sort sorry of fantasy I role? Brought that label up, by the way. Yeah. I no, no, sorry. Yeah. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah, well, that's like interesting. And point. I guess that kind of, we were talking beforehand about nostalgia in pop culture and perhaps we've all got this like super big attachment to Parker Posey because she does remind us of these yeah, iconic Yeah, there's a fairly limited women. age range represented in this room, mm. I would say. Yeah. Mm. And just kind of following on from what Luke said, I can't wait till she's in her 70s and just everywhere. Because <laughs> she's going to be an amazing older actress as well. And um, we might have to leave it there because uh, we are running a bit over time. Um, as I mentioned before, we still do have about a week and a half left of the In Praise of Parker Posey film season. So definitely jump online and see what uh, film screenings we have uh, coming up over the next little while um, and come along to those. Uh, but for now, please join me in thanking uh, Steph, Bhakti, Sinead, and Luke uh, for coming out. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.